0: Hello, and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. A few days ago, I posted a new conversation with Chris Klein, who is now the Senior Manager for General Education Evaluation Faculty at Western Governors University. Today, I am posting what Jimmy and I are majestically calling an encore presentation of Chris's original interview episode, which originally aired way back on March 9th of 2017, a bygone era when we didn't even have a name for this podcast yet. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to Historians in Action, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Lead Faculty for the History Program at Southern New Hampshire University. Today I'm talking to Christopher Klein, an Instructor and Learning Community Facilitator in the History Program at SNHU. Here we are going to talk about how he got into the history game, his research interests, how he interacts with students, and what advice he has for students looking to break into the history profession. So what is your name and what do you do?
1: Oh, my name is Christopher Klein, I go by Chris. And I am an adjunct instructor at SNHU and also a learning community facilitator. And the learning community, slightly different take on the idea of being an adjunct instructor as it gives me the opportunity to provide resources and assistance to students as they make their way through the uh, graduate history program um, based upon their needs and what we're seeing in the classroom and uh, really just focusing on providing additional academic resources to assist in their success.
0: Great. And uh, what is your academic background and your professional background?
1: Well, I have academic background. I have a uh, bachelor's degree in American history from Teal College uh, located in Greenville, Pennsylvania, and one master's degree from Norwich University in Northfield, Vermont, and a second master's degree in American history from American Public University System in Charlestown, West Virginia. Professional background, I've been an adjunct instructor for seven years now started in 2010 uh, with a community college in southwestern pennsylvania and it has just gradually um, grown and opportunities have increased both in person and online teaching modalities
0: and what are your uh, research and teaching interests
1: Uh, research interests my master's thesis for history focused on the revolutionary period actually focused on the uh, whiskey rebellion and why it had to occur in southwestern Pennsylvania. So I really have a solid interest in that pre-revolutionary, the colonial period I like to call, it, but that pre-revolutionary period really into the early republic and those issues that developed and you know the rise of partisan politics and all that is really intricately woven into why the Whiskey Rebellion had to occur uh, and when it did occur in southwestern Pennsylvania. Teaching interest, I really enjoy survey courses, teaching at the undergraduate level, and then obviously at the graduate level we get to into more theory and why we do what we do. So I like to say it's varied, and I enjoy that because it allows me to stay fresh and stay focused and also maintaining really an awareness of new trends and new ideas, whether it is your basic survey course or whether it is more at the, the graduate level focusing on You know whether it be historiography, historical research methods, or you know pick your graduate level course. But we focus on and we really maintain that fresh approach to the overall material and the content.
0: Yeah, I have the the same approach to the surveys and the gateway courses. Is that it kind of forces you to be the generalist that you have to be if you're going to interact with the public. We we academics tend to in our advanced studies we focus on a very small topic and we end up speaking to a very small group of people who know about that topic, but uh, the survey classes are where historians can really engage with a much broader public because we have to, well, literally in the survey classes, these are a lot of these are general education type courses. But since we're also covering a very broad topic, we also um, have to know <laughs> a lot of a lot of material exactly. and be able to engage with a broader public in, uh, in uh, effective ways.
1: Exactly.
0: With your, your Whiskey Rebellion topic, you were talking about why it ha- it happened in uh, Pennsylvania. Was this because of a geographical uh, or a political or social? What, were the, what was the kind of context that made it happen in western Pennsylvania?
1: All that and more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is the fact that obviously anybody familiar with Pennsylvania knows it, it's a very diverse state in and of itself by virtue of its size, running east to west, but at the same time, What you have in Pennsylvania is if you start to look at the geography, you know, you have the mountains, for example, that really break the state up. And one of the things I did as an example to highlight this in my research was I took a trip down the Pennsylvania Turnpike, obviously traveled on it many, many times, but you have tunnels. Uh, On the turnpike, and once you go through the very last tunnel before you approach the the Shippensburg Exit, if anybody's familiar with uh, Pennsylvania, you come out of that tunnel as you're going east, and the state, it's just really like it opens up and you're almost in a different area. And the reason for that is the mountains in western Pennsylvania are barriers, they're natural barriers. And what was occurring in western Pennsylvania at that time, and also into a larger context, uh, western Pennsylvania. Western Virginia at that time, and then down into Kentucky and things like that. So you have a connection that runs really north to south amongst people in this region. You then have what's viewed as an eastern elite in the eastern part of the state that is totally unconnected and unaware of what's occurring in the west and how something such as whiskey is a medium of exchange. They're not making whiskey to drink. Yes, they might drink it, but they're also making it to pay their rent. They're going to use it to barter, and they're also going to put it in liquid form because more of the grain, be it corn or be it uh, wheat, can actually be transported in liquid format than it can be in the solid format. And when all this starts to occur and you have this tax that was on the producer, not on the purchaser, that goes to the heart of what the problem was with the whiskey tax and why the rebellion had to occur in that region because it was such a staple. You know, there's stories that you can read as you do the research on the Whiskey Rebellion that people would go into the town center and they would have their uh, whiskey with them in liquid form. And while they were there, they would pay their rent, they would uh, buy their clothes, they might buy their food. And that was their currency. And that wasn't understood in the East. And when you start to look at that, you can see those differing ideas approach, but you know, outside of the mountains, we also need to talk about the rivers for a second, only because just as the mountains form that natural barrier, all the rivers in western Pennsylvania again run north to south. They don't connect the east to the west. So these people in western Pennsylvania were isolated. They were on their own. And now all of a sudden their livelihoods being attacked.
0: So we had a situation where you've got kind of East Coast Elites running the government, setting taxes and all of that, and, and you've got an isolated group of folks out on the West who basically don't have the resources to pay those taxes and everything. And they're, mm-hmm. since they're based on this kind of barter econo- ec- economic system with whiskey, uh, it's just, it just doesn't mesh with what's ha- what the expectations are back on the eastern side of the state.
1: That's it, and you, it's the, really the same conversation that occurs in the modern period, uh, You know that term East Coast elitism. That's something that we hear in the modern times. And it existed back in the colonial era and the post-revolutionary period as well because it was just two totally different ways of living, and it wasn't understood.
0: And in our modern system, it's kind of a – we tend to talk about like the urban-rural divide. It's kind of a yep. similar type dynamic. Exactly, exactly. Interesting stuff. I like it. So um, how did you end up in your current jobs?
1: A lot of persistence. Um, I, you know, And I, I say that, and I mean it. And the reason I say that is because of the fact that um, prior to serving as an adjunct instructor, I worked for Walmart for a 13 and a half year career is what I had. And through that time, it allowed me, obviously, I had a great career with Walmart. And everybody always says it's the only company that you can work for, change jobs but maintain your same career because there's so many different opportunities. And throughout those opportunities I had, one of the ones on a personal level was I had my opportunity to work through graduate school twice. And through that period, it opened up a lot of doors for me uh, that I never really thought about or never even considered. And one of those was serving uh, as a board member of a local history museum in southwestern Pennsylvania called West Overton Museums. And through that experience, it actually led to my working in public history for a while as an executive director of a museum. I've been in the academic side, I've been on the public history side, and I say that because that experience not only gave me insight into how public history works, which is totally different than academic history in every way, shape, and form, but it also gave me the opportunity to engage with different groups, um, different affinity groups, for example, uh, to use a public history term that have stakeholders in the particular museum. But also, I had the opportunity while there to do some work at a community college that was my very first adjunct teaching assignment that really gave me the opportunity to network, meet people, engage with students, and really develop my interest. In passion. I've always had a passion for teaching, and through those opportunities that I never even saw coming, I was able to foster them, develop them, and it really gets me to where I am today. And I highlight that because it's important to note that you never know what's going to come of one opportunity, and where it will lead and where it will set you as you move forward in your career.
0: I, I think that's right. I've had a similar experience. Historians, we never really have I mean, a lot of times we'll have like a a clear idea of what we think a historian is, but it turns out there are actually very few jobs for, you know, the tenured track historian that's living the life of the mind and all that, that we tend to kind of think of the stereotypical historian. Whereas the reality of most historians work in very different fields. That's one of the things that we're going to be tackling in this series of podcasts. We've got some working in public history, some working in academia. The vast majority of people in academia are going to be working as adjunct instructors these days. Very few are going to be tenure track. There are a few out there, but it is interesting to kind of think about how in some ways, a lot of the jobs that historians end up with are very kind of random and almost happenstance, but a lot of times it is dependent on networking. You have to Mm -hmm. get to know people, and eventually you'll start out as an adjunct at one school, and then you'll talk to somebody who will mention that there's another adjunct position somewhere else, and soon you end up working at two or three different places, and you start networking even further, and sometimes that can lead to public history opportunities, or like in your case, you start with public history and you end up in teaching. It's very hard to predict the career paths that, that a history background will uh will, will take you as as you uh, go forward in your career
1: yeah and you know just to highlight that a little bit more one of the other things that i did at the community college before i even started with the teaching assignment was i worked as a tutor and a note taker for students in the college learning center tutoring uh students with issues in like history and then also government courses because my master's degree in diplomacy is a subfield of political science so that gives a nice and route into that area as well but as a note taker for students that were um, having issues in class that might have various disabilities or whatever the case may be they just had a, had a need for somebody to take notes for them not to comprehend not to teach but just to sit in their course with them and assist in that process very enlightening experience totally unrelated to teaching but it was the proverbial foot in the door as well and that was something that worked very very well for me And it was an opportunity that I never even thought about. You never know where they're going to present themselves and where they're going to show up. But one other thing I'd like to say is you mentioned about the lack of tenure-track jobs versus also the preconceived notions that we always have. I was told by a good friend of mine who has a Ph.D. in history, uh, teaches at a community college and absolutely loves his job as a department chair at a community college. But he told me one time that he figured by the time he was 35, in his perfect career plan, he would be at Johns Hopkins uh, doing research and probably on his third or fourth book by that point in time. And obviously that was the, uh, goal he had when he was 22 and ready to go into his first master's program. And now he doesn't ever see himself leaving a community college and he doesn't have a desire to because he enjoys it so much. And I just say that because you never know. And don't let, as you're starting to think about what you want to do, don't let your preconceived notions dictate your future path and any opportunities that might throw themselves in front of you. Take advantage of everything. I was told one time to rattle all the doorknobs, and that's what you need to do as you move forward.
0: That's funny, because that does reflect my um, graduate school experience also I, I went to i got my phd at one of the big research one institutions and the the basic assumption was that everybody who graduated from there is going to immediately go into tenure track and start publishing books and here i am 6 years later <laughs> i haven't done anything like that so it it is it's very hard to predict where you're going to end up so you you mentioned earlier that you handle the learning community for the um, uh, master's degree in history at SNHU. So how would you describe your typical um, duties with that position?
1: That is really, as I mentioned, kind of like, you know, focusing on needed resources, um, just-in-time resources, as we call them, when a student comes for assistance. And it's, it's totally student-driven. It is set up in a very similar, um, I would say, as a social media platform. Per se, in that it has the opportunity for students to connect with one another, and then as the facilitator, I really look for those opportunities to assist students while also providing you know weekly webinars and uh, maintaining office hours and those types of things within that community as well. But when we talk about resources, sometimes they are driven by student need. You know, a student has a question or whatever the case may be, or could develop a resource based upon. Uh, something we're seeing within a particular course. You know, it's uh, students are showing trends with one assignment, having issues or whatever it may be. It's not tailored to any one particular course, but we do have a series of topics that we go through throughout the term uh, related to concepts focusing on attaining your your degree and being successful in your program, such as, you know, annotating bibliographies and rough drafts, really basic ideas that are geared towards research. And how to do those research aspects.
0: Yeah that's great and I think the the webinars that you do the live webinars and the pre-recorded webinars I think those are hugely beneficial to students especially students that are just now starting the graduate program since you handle the graduate learning community students a lot of students are coming into the program with Either their degree in history is very old, or maybe they majored in something else as an undergrad, so I think it is very valuable for them to check out these webinars that you're holding, so it'll help to ease them into this graduate history program, which is, which can be very difficult for new students uh, who aren't used to graduate level work, but also uh, may have, may not have a clear understanding of what graduate study in history is like. Right. You mentioned networking earlier as a as something that students could do if they wanted to follow in your footsteps.
1: The well, first thing I would tell them is, you know, when you focus on networking, uh, look at what's around you right now. Focus on getting to know your instructors, uh, making those connections, making those connections last. Because one of the things, if you're going on to graduate school, uh, you may need, for example, a letter of recommendation. You know, get to know your instructors. If you're currently in a graduate program. Again, you don't know how your instructors will be able to benefit you in the future. So take the time to get to know them, develop those relationships, let them know, and let them see what you're capable of in the classroom so that when it comes time to you, know, you request that uh, letter of recommendation, without question, that they would grant it for you, and they, that they would help you in that. Outside of your academic preparation, again, focus on the opportunities that are around you. Think local to start with. Focus on volunteer opportunities. Focus on basic needs that might exist within your regional area as it relates to history, historical research, whatever the case may be, and be open to differing ideas. Don't focus on, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I've always said I was going to do, and by golly, it's the only thing I'm going to do. Simply put, not to sound harsh, you probably, probably will never achieve it. And that's because you're being so closed-minded to what your potentials are and what opportunities are right around you to help you on a successful career path.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, So thank you for joining me here today. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this, or any of our other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Working Historians, and on Twitter at workhistorians. For Chris Klein and Jimmy Fennessy, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourself. And each other.